0: The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to the 18th psalm. Uh, As I told you last week, there's 50 verses in Psalm 18, and uh, we looked at the first six last week. So this week, we're going to study verses 7 through 19 together. Last week, we saw David open the psalm with an exclamation of his love for the Lord, and then he was just gushing with adoration as he described the strength and the faithfulness of God. And uh, these verses, they centered around the idea... Of God is a mighty deliverer and he's an ever safe refuge for his people. Now this week we're going to see David describe in very powerful and poetic language what it is like for our king to fight for his people. Now as we read this keep in mind that we're not totally sure what David is doing here okay. There are big parts of David's life not recorded in scripture. Uh, For example a lot of the time where he was running from Saul Uh, You know, the the records just kind of skip along, miss some years, things like that. So it's possible that he is describing in the scriptures we're going to read today, some real events of deliverance that looked like he's describing here. That's possible, but personally, and that doesn't mean a whole lot, but personally, as I read this, I'm more likely to agree with uh, scholars and theologians that see these verses today more poetically than, than literal, Meaning that David is using imagery language to describe the devastating might and fury of God against those who oppose Him or would want to hurt His people. Okay, um, if, if some of part of why I'm saying that is if some of what is described here that we're going to read today, if it if it literally happened, <laughs> it seems likely to me it, it would have been recorded as an actual event, right? Much like uh, David felling Goliath with a stone. Um, you would think it would have been recorded in the history portion, but either way, it's, it's not super important because it doesn't really affect the point. So there you go. All right, we're going to read Psalm 18, verses 7 through 19. Ready? Here we go. Then the earth shook and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down. "'With thick darkness under his feet, "'he rode upon a cherub and flew. "'He sped upon the wings of the wind. "'He made darkness his hiding place, "'his canopy around him. "'Darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. "'From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds. "'Hailstones and coals of fire. "'The Lord also thundered in the heavens, "'and the Most High uttered his voice. "'Hailstones and coals of fire. "'He sent out his arrows and scattered them, "'and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. "'Then the channels of water appeared, "'and the foundations of the world were laid bare.' At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Praise God for his word. Wow, that escalated quickly, didn't it? (laughs) Yeesh. Okay. So, a couple of things <laughs> preliminarily. You're going to see sprinkled in here, we just read um, a few references to the Lord's nostrils, okay? Which could seem a bit weird to our modern ear, but in several ancient cultures, uh, the nostrils were where they thought anger came from and was like most visible, okay? Like flared nostrils. So, and, and this makes sense to me on a personal level. Um, my mom, well, let me say this, Mom. If you're watching, or if you watch this later, I love you. But when your family have a preacher, you get an illustration. So, hopefully, I survive that. Okay. Uh, but here's the deal. Here's why this thing, this belief, or this idea, is, makes sense to me. Because if when we were kids, okay, if we pushed my mom to the point where her nostrils would begin to flare, you knew it was time to vacate the area and lay low for a while. Like that was that was a real good indicator. It's time. It's time to find somewhere else to be for a bit, okay? So that's all we're going to say about that. Like I said, love you, Mom. Okay, so the point I'm making here is stated more clearly and without nostrils, okay, at the end of verse 7. It says this, uh, that the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry, okay? Now, all of this language Hear about hailstones and coals of fire and lightning flashes uh, and and the Lord thundering from heaven. Okay, It, it can be summarized as the Lord was angry and he was handling his business. Okay, that's basically what we have going on here. Now, we need to understand that there's a wide range of responses to this based on your relationship with or understanding of anger. Okay, the two ends of the spectrum, with Lots of room in the middle are, are probably these, okay? So some people read this that the Lord's angry, this very descriptive, poetic, strong language about what that looked like. They read that and they're like, ooh, mm, I don't like this, right? Because I, I thought God is love, and this this does not sound very loving to me. Okay? That's that's one end of the spectrum of how someone might respond to this. And some people read this, right? And they're like, Yeah, God is angry, and I'm angry see, I'm like God, right? Like they're all for it. Yes. Give me the wrath versus give me more. Right? So you've got people on, on either end of that spectrum. And as is often the case, both of these extreme responses on either end of the spectrum, they're reductionistic and they do not represent a thoughtful or circumspect approach to understanding anger in general or the anger of God and the anger of mankind in particular. Okay. So, let's start then with anger in general. There are many who, whether they would say it this way or not, or maybe even whether they're aware of it or not, they see anger as always a bad thing. But right here in verse 7, we see spelled out for us that God becomes angry. And because we know God is perfect, and in every way he abides in irreproachable holiness, we can conclude then that anger in and of itself is not always bad or sinful. You guys follow with that? God's perfect and holy, he gets angry. Okay? Anger is not always a sin. Amen. Now, I want to take a moment to point this out, though. This is very important. The person who may view anger as always bad or even just tends towards that end of the spectrum likely has a good reason for it. Uh, many times, it's abuse or mistreatment at the hands of a sinfully angry person that shapes that perspective. So if you are closer to this end of the spectrum, please know that I'm not making light of your struggle at all. Uh, but I also want to lovingly prod you to a more balanced and biblical view for your good. In the same way, I'm going to prod people from the other end that think, you know, God's angry, so I'm angry, so let's, let's party, right? I'm going to push them too. We're all going to hopefully end up closer to a gospel Center on this issue. Amen? Amen. So it is is not only the anger of God that is, is sometimes a right response to sin. I'm going to read you Ephesians 4. This is verses 26 through 27. It says, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. And so here we don't see that we're told, Don't ever be angry. It's saying that we can't sin in our anger. Okay? Now, you might be somebody that would say, well, I just I can't see how God's anger or any anger can be good. And I would say to you, dear friend, when did you come to believe that you would always be able to see how all God says is true and all he does is right? Who told you that? Because we can't always see it. As a matter of fact, to acknowledge the dimness of our finite vision is a part of what it means to walk humbly before God. So without anything close to an exhaustive look at this subject, we can see fairly quickly that anger is not automatically bad, whether it is God or people who are angry. But we also see there is a definite potential, and I would say a high probability is more accurate than to say potential. It's a probability that for humans... To sin as a result of their anger. A lot of warnings about that, okay? But we don't want to draw a line where the scriptures don't, and we don't want to remove the possibility of there being righteous anger or anger that is not sinful, because I believe the Bible does teach that that is possible. A major part of thinking biblically about this is making the clear distinction in our minds between God's anger and our anger. The great error we must avoid in considering the topic of anger is projecting the imperfections of our anger upon God or the perfection of his anger upon ourselves. Okay? So many people struggle with the anger of God because they are projecting our imperfect experience of anger onto him. And many people justify themselves in their own anger because they wrongly assume (laughs) that they're motives, and ability to discern what's going on is perfect like God's. Can't do that. J.I. Packer summarizes this way. He says, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. Okay. Now, there are also many in trying to work through all of this who by mistake will make a false distinction between how God is depicted in the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament and the New Testament, okay? If if somebody struggles to see anger as ever being a good or righteous response, they may be tempted to reconcile that problem by seeing God in the Old Testament as mean and vengeful, but then he changed, had an attitude adjustment, right? And God in the New Testament is, is much more warm and cuddly. Guys, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this explanation, characterizing it this way, is not only false, but it causes people to stop short of discovering the truth and the beauty of God's wrath. So, how do people end up there? Well, I don't know, because in Matthew 21 and John 2, we see Jesus, who is God in the flesh, clear the temple in righteous anger, even braiding a whip and flipping over tables of those who were cheating the people that had come there to worship the Lord. That's not the only occasion Jesus got angry. It's probably just the most famous. In addition to this well-known example, the New Testament is filled with references to the wrath of God. Thankfully, most of them are referring to the fact that God's people are not destined for his wrath if we trust by faith that Jesus took our punishment in our place. I'll read you just one example. You can go look up more later if you're curious. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. It's a great spot for you to say amen that you missed horribly right there. You want me to read it again? I'll read it again. That way you know It's coming. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Amen. That's a good verse. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.10, if you want to write that down. So what have we done? We have thus far established that anger in and of itself is not sinful, never sinful when it is God's anger, but it is often sinful when it is ours. Okay, so let's work on this question. How is God's anger good? Because if we're honest, I think there is a lot of difficulty for folks in reconciling that. There's a lot of negativity associated with anger, and that's because most of our experience with it is through the lens of sinfulness, whether our own or others. Is that right or wrong? That's right. And we end up unintentionally projecting that, not able to understand how God's anger is different. So let's talk about that. How is his anger good? Well, the first thing I'm going to tell you is that God's anger is provoked it's provoked. And what do I mean when I say that? Well, what I mean is that that God is love and has been from eternity past, okay? So before humanity was created, God existed in perfect loving community within the Trinity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God's anger and wrath are a response to sin and evil entering the world, okay? So it's not love. The Bible says God is love, okay? The Bible doesn't say God is anger. Okay, so love is is a part of God's essential nature eternally. It isn't until sin comes on the scene that there's a need for God's wrath or a response to sin. Okay, so his his wrath is provoked. It's not some kind of character flaw that ends up showing when someone ticks him off bad enough. Okay, God does not love us because of some intrinsically good or worthy thing found in us. He loves us because he loves us. And this is true even while we were yet sinners, right? According to Romans 5.8. So what does that mean? It means that God's anger is not the result of a character flaw. It is perfectly measured and precise, and it flows from the perspective of one who is both holy and righteous. The wrath of God, according to John Stott, is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. And so we see that the love of God is, or I'm sorry, the anger of God is is provoked. It's justified. The second thing I'm going to tell you is that God's anger is slow. Psalms 103 verse 8 says, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. God does not fly off the handle. He does not act out of emotional outbursts. His anger is measured and calculated, and it is always perfectly proportionate to the offense. Now, it's easy to confuse sometimes the Most High with depictions of other man-made deities who are petty or selfish, and that's a part of their default character. But this is not how God has been revealed to us through His Word. God is angry about sin and all that will stand between him and his people. But this is not motivated by anything other than his love for those who belong to him. God's anger is not some weird thing off to the side he taps into when, when, when he sets his love aside. One flows from the other. Zechariah 8 verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. God's wrath pours forth from God's love. They don't, those are not diametrically opposed. Those are not in conflict with one another. They work together. That leads us to the last point about God's anger. And that is this, to just say plainly, it is a response of love. It is a response of love. Now, when it comes to his people, this is fairly easy to understand, I think. We can observe this principle in the anguish-inducing anger that human parents feel towards the behavior of their children at times. Now, I want to be clear. (laughs) Our anger with children can and is often motivated by selfishness and a lack of patience. Is that true? It's true. But sometimes it, it truly is that we can see the self-destructive nature of what they're doing and out of our love for them, we're angry. That is sometimes the case. It's always the case with God. But we can, we can get a glimpse of this, at least, in, in human parenting. Uh, for example, just yesterday, uh, Max and Lucy, went, they went running out to my truck uh, because we were headed somewhere. And they blew right out into the street without looking. Dead out in the middle, full sprint. They're laughing and pushing each other and whatever, just not paying attention. Full sprint into the street. And the loud bellow that rose up out of my belly and reverberated off all the neighbor's windows. It, honestly, it was not the result of anger at the fact that they were disobeying what I've told them in the past. Because I've told them, right? Look, don't, you do not run out in the street. You stop and you look. But at that moment, that, that was really not a factor. It really was out of my care and concern for their well-being that that they and everyone on the block heard my dad voice come out. So I, I think it's easy for us to understand, it should be, that God's wrath and God's anger is is it flows from his love and care for us, right? I, I don't think any of us truly Struggle that much to see how if God was just indifferent towards our self destructive behaviors uh, that that would that that would be the loving option this this is fairly simple to grasp, but it's harder for us to understand god's anger and wrath against those who did not belong to him now i I'll say this. There, there are some who are very comfortable with just being thankful that they are one of God's children, and they think it's fine to just consider everyone else as kindling in the fire of God's fury. Uh, but this is not the way God Himself talks about it. Ezekiel 33, verse 11 says, Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die? O house of Israel. So hearing God talk like that, what then do we make of scriptures like Psalm 18 or others where it's clear that God unleashes his wrath upon the ungodly? Noah's flood, for example, or the times when God commanded Israel to wipe out whole nations of people. How is God's anger flowing out of his great love in these instances? I think the language of the flood narrative gives us a clue. Let me read you just one verse from that. This is in Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You see, God knows the inner working of every person's heart. And also, whether they will turn from their wickedness to trust in him. And you get the sense from this passage in Genesis that God knew if he left things going as they were, it was only going to get more wicked and more people were going to drift even farther from their created purpose of knowing him, loving him, and being loved by him. There are people whom God knows will never turn from their evil and will only bring more harm to others and to themselves if they're allowed to continue. And in these cases, as with Sodom and Gomorrah, it's actually merciful and loving for God to stop them. It's it's merciful and loving to them to not heap more judgment upon themselves if all they're going to do is continue in their wickedness. But it's also loving and merciful to those who do follow God and will be harmed by those who won't. As in the cases of Israel wiping out other tribes who were committed to destroying God's people and committed to worshiping demons and and the child sacrifice and all the other vile evils that came along with that. Here's what we can know for sure. There is nothing that God does, ever, that is not motivated by his essential nature of love, ever. He doesn't shut his love off to do hard things and then turn it back on. And here's, we, it's okay for us to say this, we may struggle at times to see how it all connects. We may struggle at times to understand how this thing or that thing flows from God's good nature of love. But our inability to see how it all connects, it does not affect its truthfulness. Any more than our inability to see oxygen affects its existence. We are not the grand judge or arbiter, and our sight is limited. We've been told enough, we've been showed enough to know that God's intention and motivation is love. And I think it's, this is a little bit of repeat, but it's worth it in, in the context of what we're saying. If God was indifferent to sin and evil and all the things that bring death to us by separating us from him, it would be very difficult to believe that he really loves us. God's justice and God's wrath, God's anger, it's all wrapped up in and motivated by his love. He's on a mission, man. Us and him forever. And if you're going to get in the way of that mission and, and you refuse to move, he'll move you. So get on a train, y'all. <laughs> you step in front of it, eee, you know. <laughs> so, what have we done? We've discussed anger in general and God's anger. Now, let's get to the really fun one. That's our anger, your anger. Just in case you're not irritated, I want to make sure I poke you. We're gonna talk about your anger. You. <laughs> so, what do we know? We know it's often sinful. We know that we are tempted to justify it by comparing our anger to God's. And we also know that this doesn't hold water. Okay? So how do we think about human anger? And how do we know if the anger we experience is righteous or needs to be repented of? How can we figure that out? Well, let's talk about it. The first thing I'm going to give you in thinking through your own anger and assessing that and this is just general in life as you walk this thing out, be suspicious of your anger. Be suspicious of your anger. Now, this, this part of the sermon is going to be more applicable. That's, applicable isn't a word. There's a word called applicable, and that's the one I was after. This part of the sermon is going to be more applicable. I just had to change the pronunciation to get it. That's what the problem was. Kind of went all Canadian like Miss Sarah did earlier. A- applicable. I'm struggling with it again. You ever have a word do that to you? That's really weird. It doesn't happen to me very often. Praise the Lord. He's humbling me right here in the pulpit. I could say applicable though. Applicable. How many times do you want to hear it? <laughs> this part of the sermon is going to be more applicable for those who earlier related more to the end of the spectrum of God's angry, I'm angry, see I'm like God, right? So this, this part of the sermon's going to be more for you... <laughs> Because I know there are some of you here who are immediately convicted when you are sinfully angry and you are quick to repent. There are some of you who are very sensitive to your own anger, other people's anger, and so this is not something that you are tempted to justify very much. And maybe on the other end, you need to be angry about some things. We'll talk about that in a second. But for some of us, anger can become such a frequent traveling companion on our journey that when habits and ways of responding, when they become normative, it, it can be really difficult to fight the temptation to justify ourselves. That is just the truth. What we need to do is we need to change our default from justifying our anger because God gets angry or because the thing we're angry about seems to warrant it. We need to switch from that, that justification instinct, And we need to fill our minds and hearts with the warnings and the admonitions throughout the scriptures that quick tempered people are fools to the degree that others are warned not even to associate with us. You notice I'm using lots of inclusive language at this part of the sermon because I'm not preaching at you. We're in this together. When when we feel that anger start to rise, we should be instantly suspicious and assume we are not experiencing the kind of righteous anger that comes from love for God and love for people. We should assume we are operating out of selfish offense and a need to repent. And that we need to repent. We should do that, not, not try to explain why we are justified in our response. We need to assume We're operating out of selfish offense when that anger starts to rise. That we need to repent and not try to justify ourselves. You already said that once. It's real important. I figured I'd say it twice. Amen. So, the first thing is be suspicious of your anger. The second is we must be slow to anger. If we're going to experience the kind of righteous anger that every follower of God should feel about the abuse and exploitation of those who can't defend themselves, or whatever other grotesque evil we see in this world, we should arrive at that anger, we should get there through prayer and long, slow, circumspect thinking. We live in what has been commonly referred to as an outrage culture. And there is an insidious temptation to be righteously indignant with my fingers in the air. See that? You see my fingers? to be righteously indignant about something every time the news cycle turns over. We're tempted by that. But we need to be wiser than we sometimes are, and we need to realize that many times we're getting half-truths, and even the half we're getting has been shaped and shaded by somebody's bias. If we're going to have godly anger, it will be slow like his. Now, this same principle applies in our families, in our churches, in our jobs, with interpersonal interactions as well. Godly anger is slow, not reactionary. It's not self-indulgent and is always pointed towards reconciliation. Now, if you're sitting here saying, I can't even imagine anger that's pointed towards reconciliation, you should be even more suspect of your anger then. (laughs) There needs, there's more thinking and shaping that needs to be done with the help of God's Spirit and through God's Word. God's anger is pointed towards a purpose, it's towards redemption. So we need to be suspicious of our anger. We need to be slow to anger. The third thing I'll give you is that we need to be angry like God. Now, again, full disclosure. We will never do this perfectly. And everything I just said in the way of warning still applies. But we can learn something about what to do when we are angry by observing what God does. Okay? First of all, God's anger focuses on the real enemy. Let me read you Romans 1 verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Did you catch that? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Did it say ungodly and unrighteous men? It said ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You see, God understands that his battle is not against flesh and blood, and neither is ours. We've heard that somewhere else, right? We've got Ephesians six twelve. It says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our anger should not be pointed at one another, but against, and pointed towards and against these things. These world forces of darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness, all the, the kind of, the puppet master in the back, so to speak. So my question is then, with all of the scriptures about God's wrath and anger and fury, right? All the stories of the Old Testament, of his judgment being poured out, what was all that for? What was all of that setting up? Why was there a flood so that from Noah's descendants could come Abraham? And and why was Egypt's army crushed in the Red Sea? And why were the Amalekites wiped out of the Promised Land? And why was Goliath killed by a shepherd boy who was under the power of God? Why the exile and the fall of Babylon? It was all leading up to Jesus coming, living a perfect, sinless life, and then dying for our sins. It was all a setup, man. God's wrath being poured out, God's anger being focused, it was all towards this end. And it was all against. All of the forces that would try to stand against the constant march of God's plan of redemption unfolding, of his kingdom going forth. The real enemy has been Satan, sin, and death all along. And God has been furious with these enemies from the time that they entered the scene. And the question I'm asking you is how did he beat them? He beat them by going low. By becoming a man, and not only that, a humble servant, to the point of allowing himself to be murdered on a Roman cross. Jesus absorbed the wrath and fury of God against sin on the cross, and this was the death blow to the forces of darkness. So, how do those of us who struggle with sinful anger get free? If what I'm saying is we need to be angry like God, we need to follow God's Example. Well, what do we do? We follow in the mold of our maker. We focus that anger where it really belongs, on sin and Satan and death. And we make war with them by getting low, by loving and serving others at great cost to our own preference and comfort. And in doing so, we lay waste to our foes. We walk in love and we give up our right to insist that others meet our needs and we pour ourselves out in meeting the needs of others. And in so doing, we get the satisfaction of knowing as we do these things, we are dealing crushing blows to the enemy of our souls. We love God and we love people and we walk in righteous anger towards all that would stand in the way of God's great kingdom going forward and his plan for redemption being realized. If we're going to be angry without sin, we need to be more angry with our own sin and put it to death rather than focusing on the sin of those around us and focusing our anger on that. With the help of God's Holy Spirit, we can be angry like Him and we can join in the battle against His enemy and ours. And the good news is when we fall short in this, when we feel like we are incapable of going on anymore, when the battle seems too fierce and we are overwhelmed like many waters of a flood, we can cry out to our king and we can experience the might of his delivering hand as he fights for us. That's what David's describing here. And then we can declare as David did in verse 19, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Praise God. May we rejoice in God's perfect wrath and continually seek his help that we may be angry and sin not. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Psalm 18, verses 7 through 19. Thank you, Lord, for this poetic, powerful description of the might of your hand moving on behalf of your people. God, I thank you that your nostrils flare with anger. I thank you, God, that you're not indifferent to sin and death and the poisons of bitterness and and lies and all that comes, all the sin that would pull us away from you, all the sin that would stand as barriers between us and you, all the ways the enemy tries to deceive us and pull us away into the foolishness that comes in following him. Thank you, God, that you are angry and you will defend. Thank you that you will rise up. Thank you that you will move and make war against those things. God, please help us. Lord, help us to walk this out. Help us to understand that our anger oftentimes is motivated by sin, but yours never, ever is. God, help us. It's it's difficult for us because of our experience with anger to to understand how yours flows from love. And, And God, we've done the best we can tonight looking through your scriptures to make those connections, but God, it's... It can still be fuzzy for some people. And, Lord, I'm just asking that you would, by the help of your spirit, you would connect those dots. Help us to truly be able to raise our hands in worship, thanking you that you are a wrathful God, that you are not impotent or indifferent, but that you get angry about sin and anything that would hurt your people or any enemy that would try to rise up and bring pain or or draw your people away from you. I thank you, God, that you don't just, just sit there and watch but you react. I thank you for all of that. God, help us by the power of your Spirit to be angry like you are. Help us to be suspicious of our own anger. Help us to be slow to anger and quick to love. I thank you that you're slow to anger. God, thank you that you've been slow to anger with me. Thank you that you've been slow to anger about my anger. Thank you that you are long-suffering and patient. Thank you, God, that you don't just react. You don't fly off the handle. You're not prone to emotional outbursts, but everything you do, it flows from your righteous perfection. God, help us to trust you in this. God, help us to submit all the ways that we don't see how this works. God, help us to submit all those at your feet. I thank you, God, that's not the act of somebody that's ignorant. It's the act of somebody that's humble and understands. There may be things going on at your level. There are things going on at your level that we will just not be able to grasp. Because you are God and we are not. And we rejoice in that freeing truth. God, please help us in these things. Please grow us in these things. And God, for my friends that recoil at the thought of anger in any form, those that don't understand how anger can be righteous, I ask you, God, to pull them out of that and to stir them, God, to have righteous indignation towards evil. And God, I... I just want to be angry with what you're angry about. (laughs) And I want to do it in a way that brings you glory. And I don't want to be angry about the things I'm often angry about, which is foolish and selfish. God, please help us to find this balance and to walk out all of the details of how this works in love for the furthering of your gospel and the glory of your name. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church